Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dan Lashoff, Director of World Resources Institute. Dan coordinates WRI's work in the United States across climate, energy, food, forests, water, and the Sustainable Cities Program. Dan's been working to promote solutions to climate change for more than two decades. Before World Resources Institute, Dan was Chief Operating Officer of NextGen Policy Center and previously served as the Director of the Climate and Clean Air Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Dan's focus is developing federal and state regulations to place enforceable limits on carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping pollutants. As someone who's been in the climate fight as long as Dan has, I really appreciate his perspective. We cover a lot in today's episode, including an overview of WRI and the work that they do, the four pillars that, in Dan's view, we should focus on to most effectively solve our decarbonization problem, We talk about how WRI is similar and how it's different than the other large NGOs, some specific examples of of programs that they've worked on recently and how they measure success. And finally, my favorite part of the discussion is when we get into a meaty discussion about a bunch of thorny topics as it relates to decarbonization, the role of specific technologies, the role of fossil fuels and the big oil majors, the role of adaptation, the role of policy, the role of nonprofits versus innovation versus the public sector, and of course, Dan's advice for how you and I can help if we want to maximize our own impact on the climate problem. Without further ado, let's bring him on. Dan Lashoff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. Uh, Great to be with you as well. It's funny, we met, I think it's got to be a few months ago now. I was pretty early in the journey and it's only been a few months, so I'm still early in the journey, but I feel like I'm a lot less early than the first time that I was in your office. Yeah. I think you've talked to a lot of people since since we talked a couple months ago, which is great. I have, but it's one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. So I don't know that I'm, I feel like I actually might know less percentage-wise than I thought I did seven months ago when I got into this, but I have learned a lot. But, it, but I'm uh, definitely excited to talk to you because uh, you've been doing this a long time and WRI is a big player uh, in in this world and you spent a bunch of time at NRDC and have done different, you know, very relevant things. And you've def- also seen some cycles with the environmental movement as things have evolved over the last several decades. Uh, and I have not. Uh, so I feel like I have a lot to learn from you. Another way of saying I'm pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> Rings around the tree. Yeah, not aged. Rings ex- experience. Okay. <laughs> so uh, maybe just tell me a bit about, about WRI and uh, and what the organization does and, and about um, your purview within WRI. Sure. So I've only been at WRI for about a year, but I've known about and worked with WRI since it was founded in 1982. And WRI its mission is literally to make the world a better place to live, right? So that's pretty great. And it's really a data-driven think tank, but it doesn't stop with research. It develops 
policy solutions that are pragmatic and engages with policymakers and thought leaders to try to get those adopted. So it's a really wonderful platform. As an organization, it's very global and it's really grown internationally over the last few years. So about half our staff is outside the U.S. now and offices in China and India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Europe, and Africa. I think I got them all. But my purview is the U.S., programs that are really aimed at influencing what happens here in the United States. And what are the key areas that those uh, programs are meant to serve? So globally, we work on climate, energy, water, food, forests, you know, my focus really is primarily climate, but we also in the U.S. have programs that are related to water, food, cities, restoration of ecosystems. But in my mind, all of that is like intimately connected to climate. So that's the lens through which I, I look at, at, at all of our work. Yeah, it's a challenge I've been having because when you say, like if you're looking at deep decarbonization, for example, which in, in my mind, and, you know, it's maybe, maybe the right or wrong way to think about it, but it's kind of synonymous with cl the climate change problem. It's like, well, oh, let me get up to speed on deep decarbonization. It's like, well, in order to do that, we need to decarbonize every sector across the economy. And then, so you're essentially mean, let me get up to speed on every sector throughout the economy. So is kind of a climate vertical or is it or is it like an everything vertical well it can, yeah it can't seem daunting right so i think clearly the goal has to be net zero emissions as soon as possible mid-century at the latest if we're going to prevent warming of more than one and a half degrees centigrade and you know we've learned over the last year from the scientific community that there's a world of difference between just 1.5 and 2 degrees so that's really up the urgency, I think, for everybody's work in this space. I like to think about how you get there in four buckets that, that maybe make it a little bit easier to deal with. Um, the first one, and this is where a lot of progress is being made and a lot of focus is decarbonizing electricity generation, going to you know high percentage of renewables, but we're probably also going to need other zero carbon technologies to, to fill out the portfolio. So Zero carbon electricity, that, that's kind of fundamental to how we uh, tackle the problem. Then we use that electricity to electrify everything we can electrify. So that's step number two. Step number three is we want to be as energy efficient as possible because that makes every part of the task easier to do. And the fourth one, which is, I used to talk about three, and the fourth one that really emerges when you focus on this net zero by mid-century goal is actually taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, capturing CO2 from emissions, but also direct air capture, reforestation, other technologies to actually start pulling CO2 out and keeping it out of the air. I'm going to say those back to make sure that I've internalized it. So there's electrifying everything is one. There's the underlying doing that in a zero carbon way is, is two. There's the carbon, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere at scale is three. And the fourth is efficiency? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, in, in whatever I, I, order. I switched the order around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, a lot of people would start with efficiency because that's sort of the low-hanging fruit. It doesn't matter what order. You have to do them all simultaneously. And you have to – I think what's important is – and this is, you know, a conversation that really has changed over the many years I've done this and just in the last few years. Thinking about that goal changes the way you go about the problem versus, you know, just making incremental – reductions. And um, that goal being zero carbon? The goal carbon. being zero carbon, yeah. So once you say, hey, we really have to get to zero, 
that really changes. So you might think about technologies which have the potential to reduce emissions by 20 or 30 percent. That's great. But if it leads to a dead end that doesn't create a pathway to get to zero, that's probably not where we should be investing our time and resources. Okay. So you mentioned those four pillars within that. What are you, what does your team actually do to mobilize and help make progress in those areas? So in the U.S. right now, I mean, the action by necessity is at the state level in cities in the private sector, and we work on all three of those. We also engage with Congress to seize any near-term opportunities that, that there are on a bipartisan basis right now and to lay the groundwork for what we hope is you know, an opportunity to do much more ambitious things uh, soon, like 2021. But well, let's start with the states. States have a lot of authority in the United States, you know, canonical laboratory of innovation, and they really stepped up in the last couple of years. So we now have 25 states that are part of the U.S. Climate Alliance, which is a coalition committed to the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And we're working with them in a, in a number of ways. One is actually helping them think about long-term planning for deep decarbonization. We're doing a webinar series for, for state officials, developing sort of a best practices guide for them as more and more states start to really take that target seriously and, and try to figure out what their policies are to get there. So that's a pretty exciting project. We're also supporting uh, what the states announced last year called the Natural and Working Lands Challenge. So this is looking at the landscape and ways in which forests and soils can keep carbon out of the atmosphere, remove carbon from the atmosphere. States have committed to improving their measurement of that because it's not trivial to figure out exactly what's happening on the landscape and then adopt policies to preserve and enhance the ways in which those natural systems are helping to remove carbon. So that's one bucket of work and a lot of progress is being made. I mean, just in the last few months, we've had uh, New York State passed what they call the Green New Deal, which sets a target of zero uh, net emissions by 2040. California has a, a zero net emissions goal for economy-wide. Hawaii does. And then a bunch of other states have zero carbon electricity targets. Some are soft targets. Some are actually in law. New Mexico, for example, a state you might not think of as leading the pack, just enacted a law that requires zero net, uh, zero uh, emissions from their electricity sector by 2050. So a lot of progress is being made in the states, and, and that's really exciting. Uh, cities also are, are stepping up in a lot of ways. Uh, we're running a renewable electricity accelerator for cities, uh, 25 cities that are formerly part of it, but a, a much bigger network of city sustainability officers that, that are benefiting from learning from each other uh, about how cities can acquire uh, renewable electricity uh, and use it for their own operations and depending on the structure also you know, for citizens of, of their cities. So that's a, a piece that's going on there. And then I'd mentioned in the private sector level, uh, WRI has a program called Science-Based Targets that we cooperate with other NGOs on. And this is really to get companies to adopt internal targets uh, that they commit to publicly uh, and commit to measure that are consistent with preventing warming, to keep warming well below two degrees. So 
that that's a, a flavor of what uh, of what we're doing here in the U.S. So it's a big piece of what you guys do then around knowledge sharing and education of people that are in positions to bring about change for their town, for their city, for their state, for their country? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's uh, technical assistance, policy analysis, sharing that knowledge, bringing people together, convenings, and uh, you know everything we can to get the word out. But but really, I mean, our role, unlike some other NGO, you know, is different than other other NGOs in this space, is particularly to help companies or cities or states execute on goals they've adopted. So it's, you know, uh, it's great when a governor steps up and says, I'm committed to the Paris Agreement, we're still in, we're going to, you know, meet those targets. Then the next step is they turn around and they're like, how do we do that? Uh, and in most states, they don't have a deep team uh, to turn to, and, and we can help with that. And that's uh, uh, one of the things that uh, we're here for. Given that that's a big piece of what you guys do, which is important work, how do you know if you're making progress? How do you know if you're on the right track? Well, we certainly look at what's happening sector by sector in terms of emissions. I mean, an ultimate measure of progress is what's happening in the atmosphere and the news there is not good. So, you know, if my performance review was based on uh, whether CO2 is going up in the atmosphere, I would have been fired a long time ago. But I think what we can look at is whether our knowledge products are used by decision makers. And that's really, you know, what we can contribute. And so we look at uh, our states actually implementing on the the targets that they've set out. What steps are they taking? Uh, what specific concrete policies are they adopting uh, to move things forward? Are how many companies have adopted science based targets? There's now over 500 globally, over 100 U.S. based companies. Once they commit to adopt the target, then they have to actually implement it, and we monitor their reporting uh, on, on progress towards goals. So we actually have a lot of data platforms that uh, monitor what is, uh, you know, what is actually happening both on emissions and targets and uh, implementation. And is that proprietary to you or is it a shared resource? Uh, it's a shared resource. Most of, most of it's all public on our, on our website. Uh, resource Watch is one of, the, one of the products that's out there that collects a lot of data we have a global forest watch there are some there's like a global forest watch pro version that is a subscription service for companies that want to go deeper in the data but the vast majority of it is uh, just totally open public access great we'll link to those in the show notes as well so that if any listeners want to find them they can and and so given that you haven't been at wri that long what was it that was unique and special about this opportunity that convinced you that it was the right place for you to spend the next chapter of your career so it's a great opportunity uh to to lead the u.s team at a time where uh, i think this is a critical period to lay the groundwork for the next chapter of federal policy and one of the things that that i came in really wanting to do is is help think through both what the strategy is uh, to get ready for for that, and also how federal policy, the next chapter, should be designed to really work with and support what's happening at the state level, at the city level, and at companies, uh, so that so that it is 
complementing those efforts and encouraging them to go further and not supplanting them because this is a you know this is an urgent situation that we have we need all hands on deck we can't afford to have states slow down because they think oh under the next administration the the federal government is going to take over and we can't afford to have the federal government come in and say well we're going to uh you know take the lead on climate so let's take over for what these state programs are we got to figure out how to most efficiently get these things to work together and that is different than I think the mindset a decade ago, the last time the federal government really made uh, you know, an effort to pass legislation where states had some policies in place, but they hadn't really implemented them. Uh, they hadn't gone nearly as far as, as they have now. And so I think there was more of a sense that, well, if the federal government is going to have a comprehensive program, you know, maybe the states could step back. I don't, I don't think we're in that situation anymore. Uh-huh. And, and uh, I, I've been spending some time with various NGOs. I haven't done the full tour yet, but I did a couple episodes from EDF with uh, Nat Cohan and Suzanne Brooks. I, um, I'll be speaking with uh, David Doniger from NRDC l- later today. So I guess if you just take those two as examples because they're top of mind for me, um, wh- where is WRI similar and where is it different? Maybe and maybe take each of those separately, just just to kind of clarify for me how to think about you know wh- one of the I don't know if you call guys call each other superpowers or what or what, but the you know the larger NGOs just you know what ha- what's what's you know wh- where are they the same and and where are they different? So those are two good examples. So I'm a big believer in NGOs working together. We we've got to do that, but also in each NGO playing its own position. Uh, we can't afford to play bunch ball and all go after exactly the same thing. So one thing that distinguishes WRI is that we do not have a team of lawyers doing litigation. Uh, We do not have a political operation affiliated with WRI. Both NRDC and EDF have that. That's super important. You know, I think the lawyers at NRDC have sued the Trump administration about once a week uh, to to stop the rollbacks of critical environmental standards. Um, I think that's super important. We don't do that. We are able to focus really on nonpartisan analysis, uh, policy development, data, uh, and and to be a trusted source of information across the political spectrum. So that's that's our niche. In, in the environmental community, other things like politics, litigation, absolutely important. There's no question. Elections matter. It's just not what we do. One thing I've been trying to get my brain around is the relationship between the NGOs and the innovation community as as one example or, or just kind of the, in the overall picture because it seems like in some ways in some areas there's strong collaboration and then in other areas maybe there's a bit of tension and one way i I mean i'm still my worldview is still forming but one way i've been thinking about it is that there's kind of a spectrum in the ngo world from pragmatist to purist and that as you get further down the purist side everybody aspires to do the same thing which is deep decarbonization so i think everybody's heart's in the right place. It's more just about the how and whether it should be, you know, purist, I would say, is more, you know, 
renewables, you know, and if we don't need things like nuclear, then, you know, why would we use them and and more, you know, trees and 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 reforestation versus um you know maybe more synthetic ways to replicate that or or things like that and the pragmatist is more like uh yo have you read uh how behind we are and the stakes and like it might not be pretty but like you know per- perfect is the enemy of good enough and we need to do everything we can and if it's dirty if it's ugly whatever like brute force and we just need to get it done right and there's not necessarily a right or wrong. It's more, but but I I guess I'm just curious for you to react, and I'd be really interested in how you think about that, given that I'm kind of f- fresh coming into the space, and you've been in it a long time. Yeah, no, that's a it's an important area of discussion, certainly among NGOs. Uh, I guess I would characterize myself as a pragmatic purist. That is, I'm a purist in terms of the goal. We've got to get to net zero as quickly as possible. But to me, that means we need to have all the tools in the toolbox available and adopt them based on what's going to make the quickest contribution to to the goal and not take anything off the table for other reasons. Now, which isn't to say that we shouldn't care about other environmental concerns like nuclear safety, but we don't believe we should be preemptively taking nuclear off the table as an option. Now, it may well turn out and I think recent experience suggests at least the current generation of nuclear reactors just aren't competitive with other zero carbon sources. But that's to me the question is, can it contribute to getting us to zero? Not, you know, should we exclude it because we have some preference for wind on some ideological basis? So, yeah, I just I'm a big believer in this is urgent we need to be working on all the tools. I think the other element behind this is there's some tension around the idea of should we just be focused on deploying the technologies we have versus do we need to have innovation and research and development to bring new technologies in order to get where where we need to go? And, and I think some people have the concern that if you, you know, if you're promoting research and development, that can be used as an excuse not to focus on making progress with, with what we have in hand. And again, I think it's got to be all of the above. Um, we should definitely be deploying wind and solar at scale, electric vehicles. These are technologies that, that are available now, and they can take us a long way. But to get to net zero, in a way that is affordable and politically acceptable, we're also going to need a lot of innovation. So we think that innovation isn't just R&D, right? One of the things that that pulls innovation is policy that that starts deploying things so people learn by implementing. So I think that there's, you know, a, a lot of false distinctions that get made in this space. But yeah, we, we need every every tool we can possibly throw at this plus some tools that haven't been invented yet. Well, here's my early worldview that's starting to form and it's not formed, but uh, but I'm putting it out, as I told you before we started recording, I put out my worldviews as a way to pressure test them and to expand my worldview or shift it based on what I learn along the way. This is a journey. Um, and so my early worldview is that, you know, if you look at, let's say a decade or, or, or two ago, that the uh, NGOs, the, the larger ones, primarily were 
purist in words and purist in action, right? And um, and that now over time there's been pro- – well, progress is debatable depending on what you believe. But there's been a shift in the words to be more pragmatic in terms of all hands on deck and don't take anything off the table. My worry though is that the words are more pragmatic but the actions in terms of where – the larger NGOs are allocating their resources are still towards the things that the words used to be all about, right? And so the words have started to shift, but the actions have not. That's my impression. And I'm not, I'm not saying with WRI, I'm saying with everybody. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm not sure I see it quite like that. I don't know that there's, there's really been a shift. Like I was at NRDC for a long time and NRDC's position on nuclear, for example, while some people characterize it as anti-nuclear, it was never pure ideologically anti-nuclear, you could argue that its actions were in practice more anti-nuclear than its words, but I don't think it's shifted really. I think the position has stayed the same. I think what shifted over time more than anything else is one, the urgency of the problem, just because we didn't act as quickly uh, 20 years ago as we needed to. Uh, And so, you know, back when I started in this field, we were talking about you know, let's reduce emissions 10 or 20% in the next decade. I think the conversation now is talked about, you know, much more rapid reductions being needed and, and the focus on, on net zero. The other thing that's shifted is technology and actually solar electricity costs have dropped 90% in the last decade. Wind has dropped 70%. That's, that's actually revolutionary in terms of the ability to deploy those technologies but and and I think that's led some groups to say that's all we need. And our analysis suggests that they can take us a long way, but when you look carefully at the full system integration problems, probably somewhere between 60 and 80% of our electricity can come from those kind of variable sources, maybe more. We keep learning new ways to integrate them, but that we're very likely to need other technologies, and whether that's nuclear or natural gas with carbon capture and storage or, or some other technology that maybe hasn't been invented yet, I, I don't know. But uh, again, we, we certainly think that there's a long way we can go with what we have in hand uh, that's cost-effective today, uh, but that we also need to be investing strongly in an innovation agenda. So when I was a startup founder, I read a book that was really enlightening for me. Uh, it was called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Uh, ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz wrote it. And it, it talked about the distinction between a peacetime CEO and a wartime CEO, right? And that it's two different profiles and that oftentimes a great peacetime CEO is not a great wartime CEO because it's like a completely different mindset and modus operandi, if I got that word right. And um, and when I hear terms like um, sustainability and conservation, let's just t- take those terms, I think they're really wonderful terms. They're important terms. They're important areas, right? And in peacetime, they would be enough. So like environmentalism used to be, I feel like, and again, I'm new, so caveat is everything is like 
this is all fresh and new and I, I'll probably look back in three months on what I'm saying now and be embarrassed and then same thing three months later than that, right? But but that in peacetime, those are, I mean, those, those you know, it's like things are in harmony and we're just kind of managing to the index of keeping things great, right? But I feel like the planet's in wartime, right? Where we're in a time of crisis where it, it won't be that way forever, hopefully, because we'll kind of come out the other side and survive, right? But, but I, I feel like, we need a wartime mindset. And so to me, that means that it's not just that we're not taking anything off the table, but we're actively investing in whatever. Because if you look at like the total percentage of resources that are allocated towards any of this stuff, right? Super small. And then you look at where people in climate spend their time and it's like debating, should it be this one or should it be that one with like the 0.01% of resources that are allocated here. Whereas I, for me, I feel like if we get far more leverage, all of us, if we just focus on growing that 0.1% or 0.01% to 10%, right? <laughs> and then just grow all the resource and then all the different shots on goal and, and don't take anything off the table, but actually resource to, to all of it as well. And, and so I guess, and that would mean you know, deploying nuclear more aggressively. That would mean um, investing in R&D for solar, engineer, solar geoengineering just to understand it better so we know if we need it, how do we think about it and we hope we never use it. That would mean, you know, carbon removal, direct air capture. That would mean the people that understand the hydrocarbon company or carbon better than anybody else, the hydrocarbon companies embracing them and knowing that we need their help looking forwards instead of like looking backwards and searching for accountability. Not that there shouldn't be accountability, but like we're in a time of crisis. We've got to look forwards and get out of this. So I'll get off my soapbox, but I'd love for you to just respond, react. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Like, tell me how I'm thinking about that right or wrong. Well, I definitely think we need a scale by orders of magnitude, what we're investing, no question about that in climate solutions. But we're never going to have infinite resources. So we do have to make, we still still will have to make choices. On the R&D side, totally agree. We should be looking at all of these things, nuclear, carbon removal, artificial leafs, all, you know, all kinds of uh, ideas that, and we should just be investing far, far more to create a pipeline of new innovations. When it comes to actually deploying things, I think you do have to be a little bit careful to, to focus on technologies that are the most cost-effective, um, because if you spend a lot of money building things that cost $1,000 a ton to remove CO2, that means you're going to remove less CO2 than if you invest in things that cost $50 a ton to reduce emissions, right? So that's, I guess, one perspective on it. But I think this question about how we deal with the urgency of the problem is something we struggle with. I guess I'm not totally convinced that, that the wartime analogy is super productive. Like during World War II, I think we shifted 20% of our GNP into the war effort which was sustainable over a period of a few years because everybody was, you know, it was an existential threat in the short run that everybody was behind. Uh, for climate, first of all, when we do the math, I think we're talking about, you know, 5% of GDP that needs to be directed towards investments in climate solutions, which is, again, an order of magnitude bigger than we have now, but a lot less of a burden on the economy than than the war effort. And it's got to be sustained over decades, not just a handful of years. So I'm not totally convinced that the, that the war analogy is is the right one. 
but how we recognizing that this is both uh, an existential threat and requires immediate scale up, uh, but that it also requires a sustained effort, how we communicate that and how we organize to make that happen, I think is something we, we are all struggling with. I don't think we have the right, the right answer for that. Part of the purist and pragmatist um, thing that I was pushing on, like another example of how it manifests, and and it, it's not, this is not an NGO thing. This is more just something I've cut. I, I think this this tension is something I've observed throughout the climate fight. It's not, and, it, and it's a tension. It's not like there's heroes and villains and people, you know, that are, it, 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 it's more just a, a tension that we're all trying to trying to sort through. But but for example, take like a price on carbon, right? And you've got all these different groups working on a price on carbon. And, you know, this one wants it to be revenue neutral. And this one wants to like take the revenue and apply it to this set of things or that set of things or right. And there's all these competing interests. And then the words coming out of, you know, some organizations mouths might be, well, of course, we need a price on carbon, like we support it. But then anytime a proposal comes, it's like, that's not good enough. Right. And, and, you know, there's not enough in there. There's not, there's too much this, there's not enough that. And so all the cycles we're spending kind of striving for perfect, right, is like the enemy of good enough. It's like anything is better than nothing and forward motion. And we're just sitting here paralyzed, wasting precious time, giving ourselves a steeper and steeper hole that we need to dig out of with every passing day as emissions keep rising. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there is definitely a tendency in the, in the climate policy community to get, overly focused on the details of the mechanism rather than how you make progress. And I think it's really important not to do that. You know, whether it's a carbon tax or cap and trade, whether all the revenue is given back to the people or whether it should be invested in infrastructure or uh, used in some other way, I don't think we can afford to have a you know, hard and fast position on any of that. We can express preferences and thoughts about what the best approach is, but ultimately you have to put together a coalition with enough votes to get it done. Now, in the near term, it's just not going to happen with our current Congress and and the current president. Um, so maybe you can afford to have some of these debates. But when this gets real, people are going to have to get pragmatic and be willing to uh, compromise on on their pre-existing uh, priors about, you know, what's the best approach. The best approach in, you know, putting a price on carbon is the one that can get enacted and, and, and move us forward. Yes, that, like that, that's how I've been feeling more and more and more. In fact, I, I, I'm feeling like a rallying cry emerging that I hadn't thought about before or or vocalized that's just coming out of, I mean, it's coming out of many discussions, this building blocks, but it's like manifesting from this discussion, like right here, right now, which is like when I was running a startup, right? The, the answer in startup world, if there were two or three choices and you had imperfect information and you were sitting, pulling your hair out, trying to figure out like, which was the right one. Oftentimes the answer was, you know what? Instead of obsessing about which is the right one, pick one of them, the one that feels best, and then iterate based on what you learn, but don't like, you know, talk your, you know, don't, don't back yourself into this paralysis mode where you pick nothing because every moment that you're not picking is, is a day that you're not making progress. And then progress of doing shots on goal is how you learn. And then you iterate quickly. And so it's, it's like, I'd love to see, and, and granted, 
I've never worked in government. I, I can't, the reason I don't function well in government and big companies and things like that is because I don't like bureaucracy. I like to just do stuff, right? And so I don't like those constraints, or, right? So, and I know that there are these constraints which are inevitable that I'm sure I'm taking for granted and, and trivializing, right? But, but we need, we don't, as a planet, we need to get a lot more nimble with how we're going about making progress. And I'd love to see more of those startup lessons get applied in terms of moving quickly, taking shots on goal, learning, iterating, evolving, instead of getting hung up on striving for perfect. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. We've got to make progress in whatever way we can. And that means that, you know, not only should we not be hung up on the details of how a price on carbon is designed, but, you know, that's not the only policy that can move us forward. And even if you could get a good carbon price on carbon, it's not the only policy that we need. We need a, a suite of policies and we should be advancing whatever we can advance when we can advance it. The challenge, I think, and the one of the differences between government and the startup world is government is not good at iterating quickly. It it does iterate, but it iterates really slowly. So you it's uh, I don't know how to solve that, but that don't we need to? We do, uh, we do, and you know, so instead of just adapting ourselves, you know, to capitulate to how the government works, if it's not going to get us to where we need to go as a species, don't we need to find a way to think differently as a species? I'm not talking about as WRI or as Dan or as Jason, right? But like, we need to figure this out, and if we stay on the current course that we're on, we are not going to figure this out. That that's my impression. I I, I think so. I mean, this is one reason why. We feel really strongly that we need to be working at all these different levels. Private companies adopting targets and 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 making things happen. Cities, states that that is one way in which you can get innovation um, rather than focus only on what the federal government can do. But having said that, there's also no substitute for having federal government that has. Uh, strong climate policy that's moving in the right direction, uh, both because of its ability to mobilize resources and because of the leadership that the world still looks to the United States to provide internationally. It, you know, it, we've got to make all these pieces work together and, and much more quickly than, than we ever have before. Okay, so if you could wave your magic wand then on the policy front and enact one policy that would have the biggest impact on deep decarbonization, what would it be? Well, if I had to pick one policy, I would probably set an overall cap on heat trapping pollution that cranks down every year until we get to zero by 2050. Uh, and then have to make that binding and, and enforceable. And then there's a bunch of other policies that I think would flow from that that, that would help you get there. But that's, to me... And again, this sort of policy of the day is switched back and forth between caps and taxes. And I think, you know, there's really less difference uh, in practice when you start designing the details than, than maybe meets the eye uh, initially. But, you know, that's the target. We need to adopt it, make it mandatory, and then put all of our resources to iterating towards that target. And then I'll ask you a, a broader question, which is, so not just policy. Now you could change anything. It could be policy. It could be innovation. It could be structural. It could be whatever. You know, what would that one thing be to maximize the impact on deep decarbonization? And I'd love it if you answer it two different ways with a U.S.-centric view and globally. 
And I know U.S. is your focus. So if you want to stick to U.S., that's okay. If you feel comfortable doing a global one, I'd love to hear that one as well. So I think we are going to need to remove carbon from the atmosphere to uh, prevent really out-of-control global warming. And I think we're making good progress on the electricity sector. We need to speed that up. We need to, as we talked about, use electricity to electrify cars and uh, and homes. Uh, we we have more work to do uh, on the technology side for for industry and for things like aviation. So there's innovations there. But at the end of the day, we're still going to need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And so I guess if I could pick one magic bullet, if we could actually commercialize that technology and get the cost down to you know, less than $100 a ton of CO2 removed, then I think we just simply require that every ton that goes into the atmosphere has to be offset by a ton that gets pulled out. We could actually solve this problem. And are you talking about CCS, direct air capture, all of the above, any of the above? All of the above, but I think direct air capture has to be part of the mix because when we look at what, for example, you know, a lot there's a lot of interest and for good reason in planting trees. Planting trees are great. Trees are a great way to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They can be pretty cheap, but there's only so much land in the world, and we also have to grow food for 10 billion people. And so we don't think there's going to be just enough space to get the scale of carbon removal we need from trees alone. The nice thing about direct air capture is it's, in principle, infinitely scalable. Once you have the technology cost down, you can build it where you've got abundant renewable electricity options, whether that's solar or offshore wind. Uh, you can put it where there's an opportunity to take to sequester that carbon underground. So I think that that ultimately has to be part of the mix. Didn't you just recently join some advisory committee for direct air capture? I did, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a bipartisan group from from the Bipartisan Policy Center and I think that the purpose of it is is really to to just raise the profile and say this is a part of the solution set that there's actually broad agreement on and there needs to be much more resources going into to bringing that uh into reality. And is that an area that WRI focuses on? It is. One of our projects, sort of uh, kind of national landscape, is to look at carbon dioxide removal technologies and and to look across the full spectrum from, you know, tree planting to direct air capture and more exotic things that are, that are you know, just on the horizon, some of the mineralization ideas, ocean opportunities. I mean, the full spectrum and try to assess them in a realistic way, uh, coming at it from, you know, without any preconceived ideology of, you know, trees are good and getting the oil industry involved is bad. You know, we, again, I, like we paid the oil industry trillions of dollars to pull carbon out of the ground. If we're going to end up having to pay them to take some of the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back underground, I'm okay with that if we solve the problem, right? Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of one of our projects is to really try to do a, an objective assessment of what the options are, and again, bring that information to the public, to policymakers, to to help people uh, understand what those options are. 
So what are your views on the short-term and long-term role for natural gas? That's a really good question. I think natural gas replacing, you know, the role natural gas has played in replacing coal definitely had short-term benefits uh, in terms of public health uh, because the emissions from coal, the full suite of emissions, not just the CO2, but particulates, coal production, all that, huge problem. So there's been a, a big win. How big a climate benefit it is depends pretty critically on how much methane is leaking in the process. I think the best assessment is that it's still better than coal, but we have to get at those methane leaks. We, we need to cut those down. But the fact is that uncontrolled natural gas consumption is not compatible with getting to zero net emissions in, in a cost-effective way. And I think there's a pretty strong case that we've built most, if not all, of the new gas infrastructure that was needed to back out coal. And now, because renewables have become so much cheaper than they were even five years ago, we should really be focused on going from coal directly to zero emission sources, um, both renewables. And if we are going to use gas, we're going to have to use it with carbon capture. So is there any world where natural gas is uh, should be more than just a bridge? I think if it is coupled with carbon capture and storage, it can be part of the long-term mix for balancing variable renewables. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also need a source of carbon for making chemicals and plastics that I don't think we're going to you know, do away with, um, but we have to do that in a way that is not adding net emissions to the atmosphere. So whether that means that it's coupled with uh, direct air capture to compensate for for any emissions or whether uh, you're blending some kind of waste or, or, or taking carbon from the atmosphere is your source of carbon that goes into chemicals um, or biomass that comes from sources that are not competing with food production. You know, I don't think we know what that ultimate mix looks like. You know, the bottom line is net zero is net zero. It means any carbon that we're pulling out of the ground, whether it's in natural gas or oil or coal, uh, has to be compensated by uh, carbon that we're that we're pulling by out of the atmosphere and uh, storing securely. So that's the long term uh, that we have to design for. And I mean, in this world, if we're looking at things like direct air capture or CCS or uh, with natural paired with natural gas or, or things like that, I mean, the it means working closely with the hydrocarbon companies. So I guess what. Do you have any confidence that the hydrocarbon companies will embrace this transition? And if not, then what gives you any confidence that they're going to be viable partners to help bring the stuff to life in the timescales that we need? Clearly, we need policy to make sure the hydrocarbon companies and other companies are are living within the, the, the constraints of where we need to be to protect our climate. I think different... Different companies have different approaches. I think several of them are, are at least starting to hedge their bets, particularly European-based oil companies tend to see the world a little bit differently than, than U.S.-based oil companies. Uh, but there are other oil companies that actually are you know, in the business currently of, for example, using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery that 
see a potential future where they can make money in carbon management. So there's diversity there. I don't think it's a monolith, but I would say you've got to get the rules right because companies are by nature designed to make returns for shareholders. So the only way to make sure that they're doing that in a way that's compatible with having a livable world is to have rules that make sure that that's the profitable thing to do. Some of the grassroots advocacy that's been occurring to put pressure on the large to, you know, pension funds and things like that to divest, is, is that a productive endeavor? You know, I think every tool to put pressure to, to move the system is important. I think shifting investments to clean energy is uh, extremely important, and, and we're seeing some of that. I think divestiture by itself perhaps is more of a, a rallying cry than a uh, effective mechanism because it seems like there's always some other investor who's willing to to buy the stock if uh, you know if a university or or or, or somebody else uh, divests. Which isn't to say that it shouldn't be done. I think there is a, a a messaging around here's the direction society needs to go in that that's important. But certainly, I wouldn't say that we can kind of rely on shifting investments as the only tool that, that, that moves the needle. And if you divest, then you have less control than if you're a shareholder. Right. And I think there's a good, you know, and I think there's a good argument from those who say, you know, we'd rather retain our shares and then be activist shareholders and getting companies to disclose what their climate strategies are. But so I think. Different institutions will will answer that question differently, and I think that's fine. Other than an advice question to listeners, which I'll ask after this last question, the uh, the last question is just if you had a big pot of money, say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on decarbonization. I asked you the policy thing already, which you answered. Now we're talking about just cold cash. It's yours, but you have to give it, you know, you have to allocate it towards something, and it needs to be allocated in a way that maximizes impact on deep decarbonization. Where would you put it? How would you allocate it? Right now, I would allocate it towards building out a zero-carbon electricity grid as quickly as possible, and then infrastructure for electrifying transportation. Uh, We're going to need, in addition to solar and wind, we were going to need Uh, a more robust transmission system, high voltage DC lines, probably need to bury those in a lot of places, which is going to cost, it's cost more, but if that means you can build it versus, you know, being blocked by people with legitimate concerns about not having big power lines through their, through, through the landscape that they care about, let's put it underground. So there's a, there's an infrastructure piece on transmission. There's an infrastructure piece on recharging for for electric vehicles. I think those are all ripe for large-scale investment right now. Where does adaptation fit into the mix? Yeah, adaptation has to be has to be done. I, you know, Miami is uh, investing millions of dollars in pumps because it literally floods when the sun is shining during high tides. I haven't seen this, but I heard about that just recently. It's crazy. Yeah, no, it's insane. Water literally comes up through the streets uh, on full moons, and the streets are higher than the rest than the, than the storefronts to the left and to the right. Yeah, they just raise they raise the, their way of dealing they're, with it. They're I heard raising the streets, re- yeah. and and then you know trying to installing pumps to try to get water out of their system as quickly as possible. Um, you know, I think twenty thirty years ago we worried about whether 
if we talked about the need for adaptation, whether that might let people off the hook in terms of, you know, making the investments in reducing emissions that uh, need to happen. We don't have that luxury now. Climate change is here. We've got to prepare for its effects, uh, sea level rise, more intense storms, wildfires. We've got to make those investments at the same time that we're investing in reducing emissions. One area that I think is particularly promising is to think about ways in which those two pieces can go together. For example, if you are in a coastal area that is uh, vulnerable to intense storms, then a solution that is both adaptive to that but also uh, an emission reduction solution is to have a solar microgrid that allows you to you know power your city with clean energy and normally it's connected to a broader grid so that you can take advantage of of moving electricity around to to get advantage of renewables from elsewhere but in an emergency, you have the ability to sort of island your system and continue to operate on a reduced basis uh, with your local resources. So uh, we've got to look for those kinds of win-win investments where the the investments we're making in adaptation are also helping us uh, with solving the problem. Are there any NGOs of consequence focused squarely on adaptation? Not not that I know of that are solely focused on adaptation. Um, we at WRI have launched a global commission on adaptation because we felt that it is an issue that has gotten too little attention and there needs to be you know, a higher level discussion of the importance of making those investments. I think, I, I think there's more and more NGOs that you know, have a, a, a portfolio that includes adaptation. Gosh, that seems like an opportunity. Someone and and a need. Someone should make it their only thing. Yeah. In addition to yeah. all the support from people that are doing many things and have a portfolio, but uh, I'm just thinking out loud. Uh, it, la- yeah. Last question is just any advice to listeners for you know if they're listening and they care about this problem and they want to help, but they're not really sure how to find their lane either with their time or their resources or both. What advice do you have for them? Well, I think the most important thing is to be an engaged citizen on climate. There's certainly things that, that we can all do as individuals to reduce our own carbon footprints, and, and we should do that, whether that's improving energy efficiency or putting solar on the roof, getting an electric vehicle. All those things are good, but we also need to have comprehensive policy solutions, and that means voting for climate champions, and then not just voting, but continuing to be engaged because once uh, once somebody is elected, what they focus their time on depends on what they're hearing from their constituents about. So being an active citizen, ultimately, I think is the most important thing. Dan, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And, and one uh, point I also want to emphasize is I feel like I asked you some hard questions and I did that in the spirit of trying to get to the truth. But but make no mistake, I feel deep respect and gratitude for the work that you guys do at WRI, which is very important, but also the work that you've done throughout your career. And I I just wanted to point that out explicitly and make sure that that's clear. Well, thanks for that. And I mean, these are hard questions and, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but that doesn't mean we figured this out. Um, And so there's a lot of need for new people and new voices and new ideas to uh, solve this problem. Well, great. Thanks again. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. 
Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.